and welcome to Fought Like It's Hard, the podcast that celebrates and explores the academic study of popular music. I'm Kirsten and I'm back with your second episode of our keynote series. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Womack of Monmouth University in New Jersey. I met Dr. Womack for the first time in New Jersey at Monmouth last year. I was on a panel talking about Bruce Springsteen and The Promised Land. Today, though, we're bringing it back to the UK when I was thinking about the topics that I wanted to cover for the Hot Like It's Hard platform. I knew that I wanted some British popular culture in there somewhere, and I really couldn't think of anyone better suited than Dr. Womack because he is a world-renowned authority on the Beatles and their enduring cultural influence. But alongside all of his Beatles work, Dr. Womack is also the Dean of the Wayne D. McMurray School of Humanities and Social Sciences at Monmouth, and he also serves as a professor of English. You'll hear later on that he actually has classes tailored towards the Beatles, so if you want to study the Beatles academically, I think that Monmouth might just be the place for you. If you don't want to study them, but you want to listen to them, we have the playlist for this episode up on our Spotify account, which you can find under WLIH. So go and take a listen to that. You'll know that after every episode, or not after every episode, for every episode, we have a special playlist that is tailored for everything (laughs) so if you're studying you can have a listen if you're on your commute you can have a listen because sometimes when you're talking about music it's also nice just to listen to the music so let us know what you think about that dr womack's latest book the story of abbey road and the end of the beatles is coming out on the 15th of this month and i'm really happy that he's giving us the chance to listen to the introduction unmitigated disaster right now when it was released in the autumn of 1969 the beatles abbey road album enjoyed generally favorable reviews with the likes of nme rolling stone and time rewarding the Fab Four's latest album with strong notices. For the most famous band on the planet, having exerted commercial and critical dominion across the world of pop music for nearly six years, it was par for a very enviable course. But still other reviews were mixed, even disparaging at times. None other than the venerable New York Times took surprising issue with the Beatles' most recent offering deriding the long player's contents as a clear departure from their earlier, ostensibly more sophisticated and fully realized works. In his New York Times review of October 5, 1969, Nick Cohn gave the Fab Four their props, lauding Abbey Road's concluding medley as the most impressive music they've made since Rubber Soul. But his admiration ended right then and there. For the balance of his review, Cohn didn't pull any punches, disparaging the majority of the LP songs as pretty average stuff, and in what he denigrated as his most ineffectual moments, unmitigated disaster. For Cohn, something didn't quite sound right on Abbey Road, where the words are limp-wristed, pompous, and fake, the latest compositions from George Harrison were mediocrity incarnate, and the badness ranges from mere gentle tedium to cringing embarrassment. What exactly was Cohn hearing in those tracks that gave him such dis-ease? In spite of his relatively tender age, the 23-year-old British Cohn had already earned considerable stature among the music critics of his day. During the previous winter, the Who's Peter Townsend had discussed an early draft of his rock opera with Cohn, who helpfully suggested that the songwriter round out his deaf, dumb, and blind protagonist by reimagining him as a pinball wizard, a shrewd recommendation that resulted in the eventual album's most recognizable flourish and one of the Who's signature concert staples. When Cohn's review of Abbey Road made the pages of the New York Times, the rock world took notice, just as it had done more than two years earlier when Richard Goldstein lambasted the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in the same newspaper. As with Cohn, Goldstein heralded a new breed of cultural critic, a wonderkind of sorts who, at just 22 years of age, had already published 
a book on campus drug abuse, and even more impressively, had joined the staff of the counterculture's most esteemed crew of writers at the Village Voice. While the whole of the Western world seemed to embrace Sgt. Pepper as the purest distillation yet of the group's aesthetic vision, including Robert Kreisgau, Goldstein's colleague at the Village Voice who praised the album in Esquire as the epitome of studio rock, Goldstein poo-pooed the LP as a pastiche of dissonance and harshness. The mood is mellow, even nostalgic, but like the cover, the overall effect is busy, hip, and cluttered. Like an overattended child, Sgt. Pepper is spoiled. It reeks of horns and harps, harmonica quartets, assorted animal noises, and a 91-piece orchestra. For the Beatles, critical jests from the likes of Cohn and Goldstein hardly resulted in a wound, much less a scar. As artists, they were far more unhinged in December 1967 in the aftermath of Magical Mystery Tour's television debut. After the film's BBC premiere on Boxing Day, the reviews were swift and merciless. The bigger they are, the harder they fall, and what a fall it was, James Thomas wrote in the Daily Express. The whole boring saga confirmed a long-held suspicion of mine that the Beatles are four pleasant young men who have made so much money that they can apparently afford to be contemptuous of the public. Meanwhile, the Daily Sketch couldn't help poking fun at the Beatles' recent forays into Eastern mysticism. Whoever authorized the showing of the film on BBC One should be condemned to a year squatting at the feet of the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, they wrote. For its part, the Daily Mirror condemned Magical Mystery Tour as rubbish, piffle, nonsense. For the Beatles, it was a critical drubbing that had proved difficult to stomach, especially after enjoying the artistic heights of Sgt. Pepper. As Hunter Davies, the band's authorized biographer, commented, Magical Mystery Tour marked the first time in memory that an artist felt obliged to make a public apology for his work. Indeed, Paul McCartney later remarked that, We don't say it was a good film. It was one of our first attempts. If we goofed, then we goofed. If it was a challenge and it didn't come off, we'll know better next time. Paul added, perhaps inadvisedly, I mean, you couldn't call the Queen's speech a gas either, could you? As perhaps the Beatles' single greatest artistic failure, Magical Mystery Tour marked an anomaly in the band's unprecedented career. Not merely because of the television movie's aesthetic shortcomings, but also because of the sheer fact that it was decidedly different, that it stood out, however poorly, from the extant musical and filmic corpus. In its own way, Abbey Road acted as an outlier, somehow separate and distinct, from a clutch of landmark LPs that included Rubber Soul, Revolver, Sgt. Pepper, The Beatles, known as The White Album. When it came to Abbey Road, Cohn wasn't the only critic who winced in dismay at The Beatles' latest offering. In his November 1969 review in Rolling Stone, Ed Ward lambasted Abbey Road for treading a rather tenuous line between boredom, beetledom, and bubblegum. In contrast with Cohn, who lauded the medley as the long player's solitary saving grace, Ward dismissed the song cycle's component parts as so heavily overproduced that they are hard to listen to. Writing in The Guardian, Jeffrey Cannon followed suit, observing that the Beatles' old rock and roll had energy and purpose, and this is what Abbey Road has not. Ultimately, the Beatles' new LP, in his words, is a slight matter. Perhaps to their own relief, the Beatles have lost the desire to touch us. You will enjoy Abbey Road, but it won't move you. Writing in Life magazine, Albert Goldman echoed Cannon's complaints, remarking that the medley seemed symbolic of the Beatles' latest phase, which might be described as the -the round-the-clock production of disposable music effects. Abbey Road was hardly the first work of art to be met with critical scorn in spite of its creator's contemporary renown. Cultural history is replete with such exemplars, as the great artists of their day have often been maligned by the same voices who hailed their original apotheosis. In this way, the Fab Four were no different from, say, James Joyce or Toni Morrison. As Kreisgau opined in Esquire, the Beatles had been writ large not merely as the most revolutionary artists of their time, but of all time. By the advent of Pepper, Kreisgau observed, the Beatles had been compared unpejoratively and in order to Alfred Lord Tennyson, 
Edith Sitwell, Charlie Chaplin, Donald Barthelme, Harold Pinter, and T.S. Eliot, and not to Elvis Presley or even Bob Dylan. As with the other revered artists of the past few centuries, the Beatles' latest works were treated as a bravura cultural events, moments in which the critical main readies itself for a veritable feast of sublimity, or, if they find the long-awaited work somehow lacking in style or substance, the opportunity for a high-profile media massacre. Take none other than Beethoven's Symphony No. 9 in D minor. Originally premiered in Vienna in May 1924, Beethoven's Ninth finally made its London debut in March 1925 when it was presented by the Philharmonic Society of London under the conduction of Sir George Smart. The prominent music journal, the Harmonicon, minced few words in delivering its pronouncement, writing in a banner editorial that we find Beethoven's Ninth Symphony to be precisely one hour and five minutes long. A frightful period indeed which puts the muscles and lungs of the band and the patience of the audience to a severe trial. And then there was the 20th century when a new era of mass communicational and cultural event took hold when popular journalism swiftly accrued a national, even international reach. Long before Cohn commenced his dissection of Abbey Road and the New York Times, Influential, critical publications took aim at the larger-than-life writers and artists of the day. Take the publication of James Joyce's Ulysses by Paris's Shakespeare Company Bookshop in 1922. Marking the occasion in its distinctive salmon-colored pages, the weekly Sporting Times pulled no punches in reviewing the Irish writer's most experimental effort to date. James Joyce is a writer of talent, but in Ulysses he is ruled out all the elementary decencies of life, and dwells appreciatively on things that sniggering louts of schoolboys guffaw about. In addition to his stupid glorification of mere filth, the book suffers from being written in the manner of a demented George Meredith. There are whole chapters of it without any punctuation or other guide to what the writer is really getting at. Two-thirds of it is incoherent, and the passages that are plainly written are devoid of wit displaying only a coarse alacrity intended for humor. A few years later, L.P. Hartley famously pummeled F. Scott Fitzgerald, the preeminent short story author of his time, on the publication of his novel The Great Gatsby. Mr. Scott Fitzgerald deserves a good shaking, Hartley wrote in the Saturday Review. Here is an unmistakable talent, unashamed of making itself a motley to the view. The Great Gatsby is an absurd story, whether considered as romance, melodrama, or plain record of New York high life. In terms of the critical perception of Abbey Road, the contemporary reviews of Ulysses and The Great Gatsby are doubly instructive. On the one hand, they remind, her of the widest, they remind us of the wider critical lens devoted to creative stalwarts, but on the other, they demonstrate the kinds of critical reception that artists sometimes experience during moments of technical or stylistic shift. In the cases of Joyce and Fitzgerald, Ulysses and the Great Gatsby marked key transformation in each writer's career. For his part, Joyce's novel was a radical departure from such earlier works as Dubliners and A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which must have seemed like downright conventional narratives in comparison to the brashly experimental Ulysses. In terms of the reception of The Great Gatsby, his latest novel following the publication of This Side of Paradise and The Beautiful and Damned, Fitzgerald wasn't merely under fire for deigning to present a tawdry portrait of the Gilded Age. With Gatsby, he had dared, for the third time no less, to present himself yet again to the literary set as a serious novel in contrast with the renown that he enjoyed for his best-selling short stories. In both cases, the artist had opted to defy the understandable expectations of their audience, who had grown comfortable with the Joyce and Fitzgerald of old. By any measure, the writer's respective radical experimentation and generic shifts had played a signal role in the critical reception of their latest novels. With Abbey Road, the Beatles experienced a similar, albeit slightly more nuanced, twist of critical fate. The overarching common denominator among the LP's reviews, both for good and ill, was that it sounded different. For writers like Cohn, Ward, and Cannon, the album reeked of what they each perceived as a sort of overproduction. 
but they were hardly alone. In his rave review in a December 1969 issue of The Times, William Mann praised the album as teeming with musical invention, while lamenting that some listeners would likely deride the LP's intricate production for being too gimmicky. This was a remarkable observation after the soaring technological heights that the Beatles had achieved with Sgt. Pepper only a few years earlier. In addition to emerging as the soundtrack for 1967's Summer of Love, the groundbreaking LP had dazzled the world of music and art for its high-concept production as much, if not more so, than the Fab Four's timeless compositions. By any comparison, Abbey Road made for a more demure listening experience in comparison to Sgt. Pepper's revolutionary Technicolor soundscapes. So why, then, did Abbey Road's critics continue to call out the Beatles' latest record so explicitly because of its production? Plainly and simply, Abbey Road sounded vastly different from the Beatles' previous studio efforts due to a series of technological upgrades the EMI Studios had undertaken during the late summer months of 1968. Namely, the adoption of a new 8-track mixing desk that afforded the bandmates and their production team with solid-state technology after years of working, for the most part, with tube equipment. The sound of the Beatles that had thrilled the world over, the maximum volume that their producer George Martin had coaxed out of EMI's aging studio gear, had been conspicuously altered by the subatomic properties inherent in solid-state electronics. For workaday fans and seasoned audiophiles alike, who likely had little, if any, working knowledge about the equipment upgrades at EMI Studios, the sonic differences were palpable. As far as they were concerned, the sound of the Fab Four had been, somehow, irrevocably changed. But like, like all works of art, musical or otherwise, Abbey Road was the sum of its parts, as well as the result of a very particular socio-historical context in the lives of the Beatles and their circle. The LP existed as only the latest rung in a creative continuum that had begun with the group's earliest recordings and had progressed, often with remarkable leaps in songwriting and musicianship, from the primitive to the virtuosic. Explicating the role of solid-state electronics in Abbey Road's production affords us with a signal means for understanding the ways in which recording and instrumental technology acted as potent ingredients in the LP's status as a cultural event. But of course, technology exists as but one aspect of the album's enduring acclaim. In many ways, Abbey Road was the express result of a highly particularized instance in time when technical innovation and appreciable advances in the bandmates' performances and musicianship came together in astonishing, even unexpected harmony. When the four lads from Liverpool gathered at EMI Studios in the early spring of 1969, the notion of going forward in any capacity as a working unit was a tenuous possibility at best. The January 1969 get-back sessions had stretched the group's interpersonal calculus to the brink of disbandment. At mid-month, George Harrison had briefly quit the Beatles, famously uttering, famously uttering see around the clubs as he made his exit, only to be coaxed back via a carefully negotiated Fab Four détente. By month's end, they had climbed atop the roof of their Savile Row office building for a final attempt at live performance, a last hurrah with portents that were hardly lost on anyone fortunate to be in attendance on that blustery January day. And if the rooftop concert had spelled the end of the Beatles, well, nobody in their inner circle, least of all the bandmates themselves, would have been surprised. The fact that Abbey Road came into being in any form was remarkable under the circumstances. Reuniting and Get Back's destructive wake seemed all but impossible, especially to Martin, who, having been frozen out in recent months from the band's inner workings, felt that the January 1969 sessions, with so much infighting and, at times, lackluster musicianship, marked an especially pitiful way for their world-breaking partnership to conclude. Yet when the bandmates made their way back to EMI Studios over the following months, when they decided to give it one final go before slipping into the waiting arms of history, the Beatles somehow made it work. Aided by the studio upgrades for which they had long clamored and their own evolving talent and artistry, they willed one last production into being. Flourishing under these remarkable conditions, 
they honed an improbable musical epitaph for the ages. Amazing. Well, you've been described by Rob Sheffield of Rolling Stone as the world's foremost Beatles scholar. And of course I agree, but I do have one question about that. If you're from Houston, Texas, why British culture and why the Beatles? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a very good question. And uh, while I may be, um, I, 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 I love Rob for saying that, um, you know, the world's foremost historian is not too far away from you, our good friend, Mark Lewison, um, who really is my greatest influence for this kind of work. But uh, you're right. I'm from Houston, Texas. Uh, my PhD was in 20th century British literature. I like to argue somewhat facetiously, but also mm -hmm. somewhat seriously, that the Beatles are 20th century British literature because they're a highly literary band. You know, uh, what, what's the definition of a text? A text is any complex set of signs. And the Beatles are a text, right? There's just uh, there's no doubt about that. So um, my interest in the Beatles, though, is is very specific. I am fascinated by the way in seven short years they uh, simply grow and change so very quickly. They start in a relatively primitive place and they end at the top of their game and then they disappear forever. It's one of the great art stories of all time. That's such a great way to put it. That's fascinating. Um, so did you start off as a Beatles fan or did you start to read them like a text when you first heard them? <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I did start, I think for about a day I was a Beatles fan <laughs> and I'll tell you why. So, um, like many people I have, uh, I had very, um, uh, supportive parents. So within a week uh, of me discovering the Beatles, and I'm not a first generation fan okay. either. You know, I'm, 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 I'm simply not old. And I don't even know if you, I guess you'd call me a second generation <laughs> fan, maybe third, but it depends on how you want to separate generations. Right. But um, I was not there in the 1960s when all of the uh, amazing things happened at ground zero of Beatledom, if you will. Um, but when I discovered them in the late 1970s, my parents did what doting parents do. They went and got every book on the Beatles and they brought them home and, you know, laid them for me to review. Now, at that point, I think there were 10 Beatles books. Now there are more than 3,000. And I mean, now um, you've kind and of contributed to half of that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm trying to, right? So, uh, so um, you know, Almost immediately, my parents presented me with the notion that this was something that could be studied and interpreted and interpreted in different ways um, and studied from different perspectives, right? Artistic, uh, literary, critical, historical, you name it. Exactly. So you did your PhD in what was that again? Sorry. I wrote my PhD in uh, actually just 20th century Anglo-American literature. I wrote my dissertation on novels about academic life. So people like David Lodge, uh, Vladimir Nabokov, uh, you know, folks like that um, in its published form with Palgrave. I added a chapter on David Mamet, you know, so you can see generally it's about academic life and novels about the kind of ethical conundra that professors and administrators get into. Yeah, cool. Um, why did you think it was important to give the Beatles such a voice in academia? Well, it's, uh, this is an important hallmark to me. It's the idea that um, we consume so much popular culture. You know, the Beatles are still, yeah, we absolutely do. The Beatles still top out most streaming services, um, you know, with hundreds of millions of streams per year. Um, and I think when we spend that much time on something like that, or Harry Potter, or Star Wars, or you name it, or Jane the Virgin, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, if it's something that's important and we devote our time to it, we should interpret the complexity, to go back to what I said earlier, of signs and uh, 
themes and motifs that exist inside that text. You know, um, when I talk to my students about why they're taking a Beatles class, you know, for the most part, they realize the Beatles are something important and they're worthy of study. But what I'm really giving them when we do those classes, I'm giving them the tools to think about how to appreciate popular art. You know, I'm not going to do a, a course on, um, I'm not going to do a course yet, even though I, ad I adore the band, um, on uh, Simon and Garfunkel. You know, you could, you could do one and there'd be nothing wrong with that, but I, I don't have anything to say about them. I have a lot to say about the Beatles and interrogate. So that makes them worthy of a course. Um, I'm not going to do a course conversely because they're not as important as Simon and Garfunkel <laughs> on Huey Lewis and the news, right? Yeah, yeah, I get it. <laughs> I don't, I don't know that I could spend a day on Huey Lewis and the News. I don't know if I could spend time writing about them seriously because in the world of popular culture and in the same way with the world of literary culture or filmic culture, there's high culture, middle culture, and low culture, right? And, you know, I can't pretend that uh, – yeah, you can't pretend that Huey Lewis and the News are at, at the same level – of the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or Pink Floyd or Beyonce or what have you, people who are trying to make a different kind of statement. Yeah, most definitely. And the book that you've just read that will be published on the 15th of October this year, uh, Solid State, the story of Abbey Road and the end of the Beatles, that explores the writing, recording, mixing and reception of the album. But when that album was first recorded, do you think many critics would have had it up there <laughs> in high culture? I, I don't know that they would, um, you know, as we'll see uh, <laughs> uh, with, with, with the book's inter, in, uh, introductory chapter, which is called Unmitigated Disaster. Exactly. <laughs> um, you know, um, and that's, that's so illustrative of the fact, right, that time is such an important player in our critical estimation of, of uh, a text's and artist's value. Time is so significant. You know, obviously, it, with what you just said, the cultural context of Abbey Road when it was released, um, those, those critics may very well not have seen it as significant. They may even said, have said the Beatles ended on a less than high note. Um, we are now at a point where... I don't think anybody who's a serious writer or thinker about them or art would agree with that. Yeah. Um, if you can remember the first time you heard Abbey Road, what would you have included when you were critiquing it? Wow. Um, I do remember it because um, it would have had to have been in 19, I don't know, the early 80s, maybe okay. 80, 81, somewhere in there. And I remember it because I still had it on a long playing record. And uh, I, you know, like most... Um, I guess I was about to be a teenager. So like most <laughs> lazy teenagers, mm -hmm. I would, uh, <laughs> I'd lay around and just listen to whatever it was for a long time, right? It would just be listening music. And I remember vividly when I first discovered Abbey Road, I don't think I was quite ready for it uh, in a lot of ways, but I remember vividly listening to side one, which of course ends very famously uh in half measure when when they stop when they cut the tape on uh, I want you she's so heavy right and I I have yeah. such vivid memories you know as the album would play on and on and I would lay on my bedroom floor and fall asleep which is what you do also when you're a teenager and I remember <laughs> and I remember vividly when when that abrupt moment would come, it would wake me up, even though it may be three in the morning or whatever. And so suddenly I'd be awake again. And then I'd start listening to the record and I'd finally fall asleep. And then the same moment would wake me up as it would replay. <laughs> you know, it was just kind of funny. But what I remember vividly is I don't think I was ready to interpret it. Um, I wasn't ready to, because I wasn't a first generation fan, I didn't imbibe the albums one by one in chronological order. Um, I wasn't ready to think about how significant the medley was, um, how important it was. Uh, I just didn't have the tools or the experience yet to do it. So you're saying that. And apparently, and apparently I couldn't stay up. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> yeah, that's quite a teller, isn't it? <laughs> and you're saying that about your own listening experience, that you weren't quite right. ready for it. But do you think it's reception when it first came out that that was the issue, that people weren't ready for it? Well, I think you've nailed it, actually. That's entirely true. Clearly, they were not. In fact, uh, one of the more interesting examples is with Rolling Stone magazine, where uh, the first review was somewhat negative, and Jan Winner, the editor, said, let's try again. <laughs> and they did the, uh, you know, it's almost unprecedented to say, let's go and get another review. Um, you know, there's a famous review of Sergeant Pepper from the New York Times where it was panned. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right. I think we have to grow into things. And clearly these critics, uh, many of whom I would think would have a different perspective now, had not quite found their way into that record. Yeah, most definitely, I think. But if you were to agree with any of the critics... Who would you agree with? Oh, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> on, uh, as far as Abbey Road goes. Yeah, as far as Abbey Road goes. Well, I, I do like, um, even though he wasn't completely loving, Nick Cohn uh, in, mm -hmm. in the New York Times did say that the medley was the most impressive music they've made since Rubber Soul. Uh <laughs> You know, while I don't totally agree with the fact that perhaps there were lesser pieces of music in the interim between Rubber Soul and Abbey Road, I do think that uh, that the medley itself is, you know, absolutely significant um, and elevates the Beatles' achievement uh, wholeheartedly above where it had been before at any moment. I mean, the idea that they can contemplate and execute this beautiful suite of songs that is laden with meaning uh, represents a certain artistic maturity. Most definitely. And I think because um, of the technological upgrades in sound recording um, by EMI Studios, I think that made such an impact. Um, with the way that people perceived Abbey Road because it was so different to what the Beatles had done previously. Um, do you think that they would have been better to keep it safe and not have such a, I don't want to say the words overproduced, but I know that was a common complaint at the time. But do you think they should have kept it safer or they should have just done what they did? That is a, that's a very insightful question for a number of reasons. Um, one, the Beatles, I, I don't know that uh, as human beings or artists, they could ever resist using the latest technology regardless of the outcome. I think it was so important for them to be ahead of the curve. So when a new instrument would come into the studio or – um, a new gadget became available. They wanted it like the Moog synthesizer, right? They wanted to be using that and to be on the vanguard. That was very important for them yeah. in the same way. And, and not every artist is like this, right? In the same way that they wanted every record to be different. Um, you know, a lot yeah. of people, what do they do? They give the people the same thing over and over again, um, you know, mm -hmm. to keep the money rolling in. The Beatles were willing to take risks. Now we have to balance that, uh, you know, just to be fair with the fact that they were so damn rich, they could afford to take risks, you know, so they were in the most privileged position, arguably of any artist, right? They, they, they had virtually yeah. no limitations. Um, and that's very unusual. So we have to, we have to, we have to acknowledge that. But when I said it was an, an insightful point, it's an insightful point too, because, um, they often, like artists sometimes do, right, they would often be their worst enemy. So John Lennon in particular would say in terms of overproduction, he would say like, well, we don't want all of that George Martin jiggery pokery. <laughs> that's how he, he described <laughs> it. But and, and sometimes Paul would come along with him and agree. Uh, and you get a record like uh, the Get Back Project, which, of course, is later renamed as Let It Be, where their idea was to get back to this kind of raw sound. But the truth mm -hmm. is they didn't like it. 
Uh, and that's proven <laughs> over and over again. Um, Glenn Johns and later Glenn Johns and George Martin mixed that record two or three times, and the Beatles rejected it every time. They didn't like hearing their sound in a raw state. They liked hyper-produced, well-executed productions. They weren't a jam band. They were not improvisers. That wasn't who they were, right? There are a lot of bands whom I love that are. The Beatles simply weren't cut from that cloth. And they rejected that those mixes over and over again. And the one they finally take of Let It Be is the overproduced one by Phil Spector. And I, I and I, I say it is funny, and I agree it's ironic, but I don't say it to malign them. It's just who they are, right? At a certain point, when you're an artist in anything, whether you're a writer or a painter, um, a sculptor, you name it, a musician, you've, you know, you kind of have to own who you are a little bit. Uh, and the Beatles were a highly produced band, and they they yeah. got the one guy, George Martin, who if you let him would make sure that your work never went out in a way that, that wouldn't allow it to stand the test of time. And you can listen to the Beatles now, 50, 60 years later. And some of those recordings sound like they were made literally pun intended yesterday. (laughs) Well, I think that speaks to the musical maturity of them, right? Because I think they grew into that. Um, I mean, at least I think at least that they progressed in a way that, so they weren't cut from that cloth, but I think they definitely paved themselves a way into, um, being more kind of overproduced. But I did think it was very interesting. Um, Goldman's comment that Abbey Road seems symbolic of the Beatles' latest phase, which might be described as the round that, ugh which might be described as the round the clock production of disposable music effects. And do you think the word disposable points to, um, I guess, a cheapness in popular music production? Yeah, I I do think it does, or what Nabokov might call post-lost art, you know, which is sort of counterfeit Mm -hmm. art or uh, Muzak, right? Um, I I don't agree with that uh, statement by Goldman because... What's interesting, uh, and it goes back to the very prescient comment you just made about how they matured as musicians. You know, when you work in such a confined space together and you don't take many days off and you work like dogs for seven years, right, which is what they did, um, when you do that, uh, something very interesting happens, Okay, Um, and it's exactly what you said. You become better musicians and better musicians want to hear whatever they're recording, whatever they're laying down on tape or, you know, or a a microchip, (laughs) whatever they're doing, they want to hear it in (laughs) sterling sound. Uh, They want to hear it in its best possible state, whether you're a punk band, whether you're a Brit pop band, whether you're, uh, you know, in a symphonic orchestra, you want to hear it in its best possible form. And uh, the Beatles always work toward that place. Uh, I get a common question now with all of these remixes and remasters coming out. Oh, the Beatles would have hated this. No, they wouldn't. <laughs> they, they would not have. They would have if, if the Beatles had – George Harrison said this shortly before he died. If the Beatles had 36 tracks, they would have probably overproduced themselves because they would have found a way to use 36 tracks. It probably was helpful to them to only have four or eight. Uh, during the prime of their work together. They they glommed on to any newfangled opportunity. They demanded that the studio begin to push its limits so that it could meet the ideas that were in their head. Totally, totally. Um, because Abbey Road is considered such an outlier in their disc- discography, what song would you describe as being the outlier of the track list? On Abbey Road, um, it would have to be 
It's a tough question because so many of the tracks are very, very good. But for me, the one that has such significance is Here Comes the Sun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I hate to say that because John Lennon's not on it. Uh, but, but it's very significant because um, particularly for folks who are not those first generation fans. So we're not. And uh, in fact, everybody who ever becomes a fan ever again of the Beatles will not be a first generation fan, of right? <laughs> um, that's right. Um, Here Comes the Sun is such an important gateway song to what the Beatles are about and can yeah. do. You know, it's exceedingly well performed and executed. The recording is second to none. It's just a top flight uh, work of art. And uh, it consistently ranks as the number one stream song, as the number one requested beat. I mean, it's absolutely, um, you can check, you know, right now on iTunes, it will be the number one Beatles song. Uh, I don't even need to look. Uh, <laughs> I don't. know it off the top of your head now. <laughs> it just will be. No, it just will be because it... It's such it's such a consistent gateway moment for the Beatles, and it it really does kind of capture all these kinds of moments of their art. It it it's a uni, unified song in the sense that um, it has a, a beginning, middle, and end. It takes the idea, it exhausts it, and it leaves in what you know three minutes yeah. or so. Um, you know, it's 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 an essential song and it's essential recording. You know, but there are other high point, um, other high points in the uh, obviously on the album. I mean, the medley is um, a stroke of genius. Uh, hearing them sing in three part harmony multiplied three times on the song uh, because <laughs> <laughs> you know is is magic. Uh, you know, it's it's absolutely magical. Of course. I always find track lists so interesting, especially in the way that people choose to put the songs together like that. And I probably look into things far too much, <laughs> but I found it so interesting um, because there was so much tension between the band members when they were recording Abbey Road. And they chose to have the first song as... Um, and it's just left the top of my mind. Come together. <laughs> there <laughs> yeah, you go. That was the first one. But there was such a turbulent relationship going on internally. And of course, come together. It comes from an expansion of Let's Get Together by Lennon. Yeah. When he was, he wrote that for Timothy Leary's California Governational campaign against struggle oh, it was uh, his gubernatorial so when he was running for governor see i'm gonna say i yeah. don't know how to pronounce that because i'm not north american <laughs> that's right you have a you have a you have a 100 total pass yeah, on that international card <laughs> yeah and there are a lot of americans who could not say that word so well, thank you <laughs> <laughs> no it's a fact Oh my goodness. Well, I feel validated in my mistake anyway. <laughs> but the rough version of the lyrics from Let's Get It Together, or no, I've no idea what I'm talking about. The rough version of the lyrics for Come Together was written um, when Lennon and Ono were doing their second bed-in event in Montreal. And do you think... Back to my original question, because I've completely gone off the rails. But do you think that having come together at the start of the album is telling of the turbulent band relationships that were happening during the time of recording? I think you can interpret that way because, of course, you know, as a, as a thinker about popular music and structure and sequencing – that is a very fair interpretation. Um, I think we have to balance it, though, with the fact that the guy who even then was calling some of the shots about sequencing, mm-hmm. right, was George Martin. <laughs> and George believed that you start off with the strong cut. And to his ears, that was come together. Originally, it was going to be Here Comes the Sun. Okay. You know, so it, it was an interesting choice. Uh, by George um, to to put that there. But I do think, 
it certainly works with their ethos, right? Which, uh, as Paul McCartney says at the end of the anthology, you know, he loves the Beatles music because it's very much give peace a chance, um, you know, love one another. It's not, um, you know, sawed off, kill your parents. <laughs> the Beatles, uh, and I'm paraphrasing very badly because I don't think that's what it is. Uh, <laughs> But it's it's a it's a wonderful sentiment because they really are about, um, you know, elevating the human condition. Of course. Yeah. Um, you know, in in so many ways that were way ahead of their time and may still be given the state of the world at the moment, way ahead of our time um, that come together, you know, is more important. And, and, you know, they recognize that what they were doing was very very important that it was more important than them or they wouldn't have been in that studio you know there was a a terrible fight as you've read in the book i'm sure that occurs in may 1969 and uh, paul mccartney later said it was the night we broke the liberty bell of the beatles it was a terrible night um but they record almost every bit of that album after that date and it meant walking into the studio and recognizing that you're making something art that is more important than you yeah even if you have to do it for right now and that's a great artist you, as you know george harrison quits the band briefly in january 1969 and when he comes back And he has every reason to be sore at these guys. They've treated him like a junior member of this band forever. But he comes back and he he bangs his chest and he says, heart of hearts, this is where I should be. Yeah. And it just, it floors me whenever, I think I teared up the first time I read it because that's when people are finding the best in themselves. That it's more important for me to be here um, right now with you. You know, look at John Lennon suffering from a heroin addiction, having been in a terrible car wreck in July 1969. Sure, he was cranky and messed up, but he showed up most of the time. You know, they were there until they couldn't be anymore. (laughs) And that's, you know, whether it's a marriage or (laughs) you're in a family or you're working in a shared business partnership, what have you, or in this case, you know, a musical fusion if you can't be together and that's your glue, um, it's over. And they had that glue until they didn't have it. Beautifully put. <laughs> well, you thank can, you. You can learn from the Beatles across the board in life, I think. Oh, I think you can for sure, right? If, you know, anything worth doing is a struggle. And they struggled, you know, the, the popular uh, writer Malcolm Gladwell has written widely about the 10,000 hours you have to put in to really do something. I think Gladwell's spot on. The Beatles put in all those hours, um, whether it was 10,000 or fewer or more, it doesn't matter. They put in hours and hours and they stayed together before they ever became good. Yeah, most definitely. Um, I do think this is another thing I find interesting that isn't necessarily to do with the sound of Abbey Road. It's more so to do with the album cover. I couldn't do this episode without mentioning the iconic album cover. Um, Do you think that that album cover has helped Abbey Road gain the recognition it deserves in popular culture? Oh, absolutely. Um, You know, every part of your artistic product, I don't mean to get all commercial, right? But every part (laughs) of the artifact matters, the sound, uh, the lyrics, the imagery, and certainly the cover, the way you are sharing your idea, your vision with the world. And what a perfect idea for them to memorialize even if they didn't quite know they were doing it, um, the idea of that studio, which is where they'd really lived. You know, for so many fans, it's the Ed Sullivan show, it's the Palladium, it's Shea Stadium, it's whatever, but they really lived in the studio, which is where undeniably they had their finest moments together. So, uh, you know, it's very significant in that sense. It's also significant in that they're walking away from the studio, which they are almost literally and in fact here today when we're recording this together it is two days from the 50th anniversary of that cover shot by ian mcmillan 
It is, and that was actually one of my trivia questions. Uh oh, <laughs> the eighth of August. That's right, and uh, <laughs> down in London uh, on Thursday of this week, they will be having a mass crossing uh, to celebrate the moment. Oh my goodness, that I did not know. Do they do that every year? They do something, but you know, obviously this year with the the rounded fiftieth anniversary is going to bring in a lot of folks. Amazing. And it was also the 50th anniversary of the Montreal bedding this year. Oh, that's right. Is that right? Yeah. That should be right. Yeah, I was at um, the hotel um, two weeks ago. So that's going to be really awkward if I got that wrong. Oh, that's pretty cool. (laughs) Yeah, it was so cool. They have the lobby covered in lyrics and photos and there's an exhibition with flowers and peace wheels and it's beautiful very nice really beautiful but i guess um when you were saying about they really lived in that studio i'm gonna get a little bit silly for a second (laughs) did you ever believe the paul is dead theory that was spreading across i guess more college campuses around north america oh no uh and and no no, and i'll tell you why first of all i didn't experience it in real time so that's important um uh but it's also significant that it happens outside of their story you know they're really not involved in it it's just a fun thing that uh that fans identified you know, at a certain point, it really wasn't about them. Uh, so it's, to me, it's kind of, uh, it's interesting in that way that it exists outside of them. And that's important. I mean, anything worth loving, whether it's music or Harry Potter, I'll bring up Harry Potter again, anything worth loving (laughs) is worth exploring and imbibing full stop. Right. And, and that's what people have done indeed with the Beatles. Of course. Do you think that sometimes musical interpretation goes a bit too far? I know that's more of um, an imagery interpretation. But do you think by, um, or I guess, really, do you think that we can overanalyze an album like Abbey Road? <laughs> you know, I don't, <laughs> I don't know that you can overanalyze anything necessarily. Um, but... I do, I do believe that it's all about your evidence. So, you know, if you can make an argument and you can demonstrate evidence, you've got a violent interpretation. Um, <laughs> that's the deal, you know, and not everyone is, is capable uh, of that kind of work or, or taking that kind of angle about something. That To me, that's really, um, really the significant... Uh, validating point whether or not you can do it um i i vividly remember one of my first literature courses very long ago and i was teaching uh i was teaching t.s Eliot's um the wasteland and this guy in my class said it's about aliens and i said okay i've never heard that before that's kind of fun explain to me why it's about aliens and he said well you know just because i think it is well you know that doesn't cut it (laughs) right no i mean it just doesn't of course it doesn't you know i i said i'll buy that if you will create evidence in the text or at the very least in the moment in which he's writing uh that poem that demonstrates why that's true, but you got to do that work. You know, now I do agree that at a certain point, uh, you can overanalyze something if you deny yourself the opportunity to experience joy. So for example, I don't know that if I don't love a text or if I can't have the experience of just really loving um, 
Abbey Road, right? If if there's a moment when I hear the end and Paul singing those amazing lyrics and the piano coming into beautiful coalescence with the symphony orchestra, if it's not moving me, I shouldn't be writing about it anymore. You know, you want to bring a certain a level of passion to your critical work in whatever genre it is. I mean, you do have to be at least a little in love with something uh, to do this kind of work. Don't you think no matter what it is, you've got to be a little bit in love with it. And if you are, then, you know, good things will happen and and you you can experience it, but you never want to overanalyze. I think anything to the point, if it exists where you no longer feel that love, because then you've lost something. I never want to study the Beatles or anything uh, to the level where I can't still divorce myself from one of my interpretations of something, no matter how valid and not get the jolt or the passion of the experience. That's why we love art. And some of it I can't explain. <laughs> you know, we have to live with that too, right? Some of it we can't explain why why something is so powerful <laughs> and moving for us. It, I mean, just in the same way that I don't know if I can – you can't explain why you love your significant other or, you know, <laughs> or your puppy, you know? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that's fair. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, do you think – Based off of that, um, that kind of passion and for loving something and perhaps overanalyzing, that there will be, or not there will be bands, but do you think there's any band right now that you can think of that's going through this kind of, um, they've just put out a new album and it's got the same reception as Abbey Road? Like, it's not being picked up by the critics. Who do you think in the next 20 years that we're going to look back on and say that was a great album, but we weren't ready for it? Wow. Um, That is a tough question. No, it's a great (laughs) one, but it's tough, right? Um, um, I'm going to say something really uncool. And, uh, uh, but I don't mind because you've created such a safe space with this podcast that I'm okay with doing it. Um, you know, when I, when I think about the bands we listen to today, one band that is just ridiculed up and down and sometimes deservedly is Coldplay. Um, I think two of their albums, Viva La Vida and, uh, A Rush of Blood to the Head are going to age really, really well. Um, for all the making mm-hmm. fun <laughs> that happens with with poor Coldplay, uh, I think that they are incredibly uh, well played, well performed, um, and uh, they will they will be seen as being important. Will they be Abbey Road? I don't know about that. Although they're very good, very good records. Um, you know, one of my fondest dreams, frankly, is that I'm alive when the next huge pop explosion happens you know there's elvis the beatles perhaps michael jackson others can be argued here and there i would really like to be living to experience um, a musical phenomenon that is so totalizing that i can't get enough of it you know i don't want my world to just be the beatles right and it isn't by the way i mean there are you know, I love thousands and thousands of songs by many different artists, but I would love us to live in a place where uh, to hear new music that just blows our minds. Most definitely. I think the ones that are kind of coming up to me in terms of I'm thinking of Elvis and I'm thinking of mainly Beatlemania. Um, you've got Beyonce and her Beehive and Lady Gaga and the Monsters. Do you think that we would ever see Beatlemania again, but for another band? Like, do you think anyone has come up to that monumental position of Beatlemania? You know, they, they haven't. And it, it and again, it pisses me off. I want <laughs> I want to experience something. I would love it if it's if I hear it and I think, wow, the Beatles, what an incredible artistic output. They're now number two for me. I'd be fine with that. Um, you know, I I judge great art on its own merits. So 
I desperately, dearly want to have that experience. We need to remember, though, with the Beatles, they had something that I think will be impossible, at least for the foreseeable future. You know, they had no competition. There wasn't 24-hour sports. You couldn't go to Netflix and watch any movie you, movie you want at any moment you want to watch it. You didn't have, um, you, you know, they the, the Beatles in the United States, for example, were up against two or three networks. Same was mostly true in the in the United Kingdom. They had no competition. So when this great thing came along, and they certainly didn't have it in the popular music of the day, um, although there is plenty of great music from that period, there are parts of it where they they were sort of riding in the top of the 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 at the top of the mast on the ship, right? Um, but they didn't have competition. So it's very tough now. Uh, whether you're a writer or a sculptor or a musician to be heard in all the noise of our world. That's a challenge. Um, but I really want it. I want to hear something that is so totalizing and wonderful that uh, I'm putting the Beatles on a shelf, um, you know, possibly not forever, but um, at least with the recognition that there's something out there that's just really moving me. Of course, and I need you to bear with me for this thought, but we were talking about the overproduction, um, or I guess not the overproduction, but the idea that there was this overproduction on Abbey Road. Do you think that that can be compared to the competition we're seeing now with an on-demand culture, where there is competition that's coming from other sources of production? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, to our friends and colleagues and fellow students out there, I think that observation's entirely true. And, of course, there's the danger of comparison, you know, about how well something's produced, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But what a moment if you're a content creator, because we all hunger for something that moves us, that's great. And I go to Netflix, right? I'm looking for the next uh, series I'm going to exercise too, because, you know, you want something that's episodic. <laughs> it's hard to find, right? I mean, because a lot of uh, half of what I turn on, I don't want to watch the second episode. That's a reality of our experience yeah. right now. So if you're a content creator and there are something like 300 different channels uh, and content producers who are making materiel for these kinds of uh, online opportunities, this is the golden age that we're now in to come out and be great. Because right now, at least half of it is not great. What a moment to be able to come out and say, I'm going to make my show. I'm going to make my album. <laughs> this is the moment. <laughs> and we did speak about this, so I know you know the answer. Um, you know who the first Beatle was to cross Abbey Road, right? And I cover? sure do. Yeah, who was it's it? It's Mr. John Lennon. Of course it is. And if we're still going by our Paul is dead theory... He's the guy in white. He's supposed to be the guy leading the procession, Oh, right? yeah. That's right. Yep. There's my album art imagery. <laughs> That's right. And what? Paul's the body and George is the grave digger and Ringo's the undertaker, I think, is how that works. Yep. That's right. And Paul's barefoot smoking a cigarette and he's out of step with the rest of them. That's what it there was. There you go. And... Yeah, the car off to the side, its number plate was 28F, and that was supposed to mean that he was dead, because even though he was 27, I don't really get that part of the theory. <laughs> but <laughs> um, And it was taken on the 8th of August, but do you know the time? Wasn't it 10 a.m.? No, it was 11.35. Wow, I'm surprised I'm that close. <laughs> <laughs> and a British bellboy. Um Oh, no, not a bellboy, a British bobby, a policeman, held up the traffic for 10 minutes and six of those pictures were taken. It's not like now where you go across as a tourist and you're like spamming the button. <laughs> That's right. I'm always worried that somebody is going to, uh, you know, somebody's going to get hurt. Yeah, yeah. I have to admit, I was there last month, actually. 
this sounds really nerdy of me. I was at the Montreal Hotel two weeks ago and I was at Abbey Road one month ago, but it wasn't for the Beatles either of those times. It's just a coincidence. <laughs> um, but if we forget about the Beatles for a minute, what name did the group go by before they were the Beatles? Oh, their first name was the Quarrymen. Yeah. Uh, and then they were the, you know, they were the Silver Beetles. They were the Nurk Twins. They were Long John Silver. And they had all sorts of different silly names uh, until they finally arrived on, on the one that made the most sense. Yeah, they did. I think the only two I know other than that are the Blackjacks and Johnny and the Moondogs. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And you know, the Blackjacks was such a popular name. Half of the skiffle bands were called the Blackjacks. People <laughs> must have loved gambling, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> oh, dear. How many hours did it take the Beatles to record the Sgt. Paper album? It took 700 something it did. It took 700 hours to record over a period of 129 days. Not bad. Which is no, pretty crazy. And if you put that into perspective, the Beatles' debut studio album, Please Please Me, took just over nine hours to complete. It is pretty crazy. A friend of mine uh, named Aaron Kretovitz recently, um, he recently... Uh, did the math on the White Album, and he came up with something like 800 hours. Oh, wow. Yeah. crazy. But it is a longer record, so I guess so. Yeah, and you've got to take that into account, too. And I just have one final question. What were George Harrison's last words to Ringo Starr? Oh, wow. I do. Is it that moment when he said, do you want me to come with you? Yep, that's it. <laughs> oh, isn't that the most heartbreaking thing you've ever seen? Right? It's so sad. So sad. Yeah. It's such a it it's was... such a it's why the story matters though, right? Because that's real that's real humanity. It's the same way that as I tell my students, you know, they're amazing musicians, but let's not treat them like gods. They're human beings. It's a human story. Some people are going to leave the story elderly like George. Some are going to leave because of murder, right? I mean, it's, it's a real tale. There'll be love. There'll be reunion. It's got it all. It should be a series. No, I totally agree with you. It is. It's heartbreaking, but so, so heartwarming at the same time. But thank you so much for participating. Well, I feel like we got a good one here. And you are doing something great. This is an excellent idea. Thank you for listening. Remember to leave a review or rate this podcast episode on whatever platform you choose to listen to it on. You can follow along with our content over on our Instagram account at WLIHpodcast. And you can also visit our website, www.wlihpodcast.com. Remember that our call for papers operates on a rolling basis. So if you have something that you want to talk about, please get in touch with your abstracts and biographies. You'll find all of the information you need to apply to have your very own episode over on our website, which is again, www.wlihpodcast.com wlihpodcast.com. Our next episode is with Dr. Catherine Carlin of Kansas State, and we are going to be talking about Eta Moten. So until then, stay well. Mm -hmm.